Hi, welcome back to another episode of Casters of Valhalla. I'm your host, Mike Schober, Work Elf Army One. Joining me tonight, as always, is Ken. Good morning. Still not morning, Ken, but good morning. With me also is going to be Infected Sloth, Nathan Ash. Hey, how's it going? And then in the background, might be chiming in from time to time, we have Cleon, Cody. Hey, what's up? Hey, what's up, Cody? All right, so we have a very special episode for you guys today. And I know I say that quite frequently that we have a very special episode, but this truly is a very special episode. Uh, this this man that we have joining us today is kind of the founder of Strategy Articles for Heroescape. Uh, he pretty much wrote the book on the subject. In fact, uh, and I'll let him tell you about himself more, but as I found out, he actually was the reason they started the whole strategy subform on Heroescapers, which is really cool. So a real old school player, um, somebody who was playing a lot back in the day with people like Spider Poison, Matzer, Mantrain, Ken and Cody as well. Um, although as Ken points out, Cody was like four, so he doesn't really count. But joining us tonight, very special guest, Jexic. Hey, how's it going? I'm great. How are you? Ah, pretty good. It's it's. Uh, I'm just glad that you know, people are still talking about this stuff. I think it's cool. Absolutely. So we just kind of want you to tell us first, I mean, a little about a little bit about yourself, if you want, um, about why, just kind of like your background in Scape, um, at least back in the day, and then, it, and then just kind of what what possessed you to write this article. <laughs> possessed is a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> I um I don't know. Well, like I first came on to the scene like in 2007. Uh, July. My birthday is in July. So my friend gave me the master set. And like two days later, I Googled it. I was like, I got to figure out where this is. Like, I got to know more about this game. And I, before I knew it, I was reading the power rankings thread and all this other stuff. But it was July. Gen Con was a month away. There was no way I was going to be able to go. Right. But still, I looked at all the forums and was trying to see all the armies people were playing, what they were doing. You know, I, at that time, you could still order Wave 1 on HasbroToyShop.com for like $10 a pop. And just, you know, I, so I had like started getting two times of my commons and all that kind of stuff just to start kind of getting a feel for the game. And then, you know, by the time September came around, I just I just kind of developed this theory. And it's only been two months. I'd been playing the game for two months when I, I, I was looking at it and I was talking to Joe a lot, who's uh, Spider Poison. And... I just kind of came up with this idea that uh, based in part on like uh, what UPC was a really good strategy writer back in the day. I'd say he was probably like the first guy that really was writing this thing. And he had this idea called in-game point value. And I don't remember that much about it, but I remember taking away like a lot of thoughts from it. So my idea was that, uh, that, you know, people focus a lot on point values in the game. They say Taylord costs too much or, so-and-so is under-costed and things like that. And I thought, I kind of had was coming from an economics background. I thought more about efficiency. Like, I thought, what are you doing with each turn in the game? Because that's the real currency is, you know, what, what, how much can I do in a turn? How many guys am I moving? How many attacking with? And that kind of thing. And how hard they're hitting. So um, that's kind of what started it. Great. That's awesome. I mean... It's it's kind of disheartening that you were writing this stuff in three months after playing, and I was scrubbing around for like 
probably five, six years, you know, thinking I was good at the game. And then well, I wasn't good yet. I just had a, I, I mean, I was never the best player. Anybody could tell you that. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I, I, the people would watch me and I'd look really intense. Like I'd get very focused. Um, but you know, I'd probably, I'm a, I'm a four and one, three and two kind of player, not a win every tournament sort of guy. Um, but it's probably just cause a lot of times I'd be playing top tier stuff, you know, cause I would, I would, and I think, you know, maybe not to get too into the weeds, but like when I hear you guys talk about development and all these other strategy, like larger strategy concepts, you get very into like uh, battlefield placement. I think that's maybe one of the weaknesses of this theory is I don't really go that much into it. You know what I mean? It's like I'm more on army construction and where to place your order markers, but not necessarily what to do once you actually take your turns. Um yeah, well, I mean, and for, for at least myself, that is very much a recent development in my skill set. I used to be very weak on Battlefield. I think it's something that um, we're going to be developing or we're going to be devoting full episodes to it later because it's such an important and such a tough, tough concept. And I think uh, for, for myself, I, I started, I, I played a lot of X-Wing and X-Wing is very, very much based on, can you see where you want to be? Can you see where your opponent wants to be? And can you, can you prevent your opponent from being where they want to be? So I coming from that, um, I was playing Heroescape first and then went to X-Wing and then coming back to Heroescape from X-Wing, it was kind of like, how do I, can I apply this to Heroescape? So, so for myself, that's very much, um, a new learned skill. So, um, I don't think that's really something though that gets talked about in the Heroescape community, uh, community. Like I've really never seen articles online devoted to talking about how, how that stuff happens. So it's not, um, so it's it's really not like it's a an uncommon thing for your your articles to not cover it. I mean, I think everything else they cover is great, but um, but we're expecting a new article within the next month. Yes, I'm probably I'm probably going to play some games first. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. uh, I mean, you want to? So I mean, should we just start by talking about the what's in an order marker article and kind of the general idea behind the categories and stuff? Or yeah, absolutely. So, um, so the first thing up is that I color coded them because I was insane <laughs> and, uh, I just kind of thought, okay, warm colors are where you put your order markers and cool colors are where you're going to put fewer of your order markers. That's the g- generic idea behind it. So like orange went, went on what I call the bread and butter squads, which are the type of units that you'll just make a whole army out of. They're your bonding melee, like, you know. Your arrow gruts, your blade gruts, your heavy gruts, Fourth Massachusetts line, stuff like that. Obviously, your Knights of Weston or your Blastatrons. You put your order markers on there the whole game, one, two, and three, and you hope you never get to the late game, because the the thing about common squads is that you you kind of give up a bit later on. Eventually, you act as a unique squad and have fewer activations, and you're less efficient. So the idea with these armies is just to win by a lot of points halfway through, essentially. Um, and let me let me step in real quick. Uh, there's one more category within bread and butter too that I had never really thought about this way until I read reread your article today. And you put the commander style figures within the bread and butter too, um, which I think now looking back makes a lot of sense. I I don't know what I was thinking before, kind of like what category like Olganesh and 
uh, Kato Katsuro and uh, Karak the Elementalist. Um, I guess I, I don't know. It, it, I think it's interesting because it's almost it's almost like they're, they're kind of bread and butter, but like, for example, in Kurok, the, the elementals are almost the bread and butter, you know? Um, I, they, they're weird. They're, they're weird like that, but I, I think it does make sense thinking about it that they do fit within that bread and butter category. It's just not, not traditionally what is, like, when people say bread and butter, traditionally they mean stingers and forth and uh, heavies and knights and that sort of stuff. Right, and now I'm looking at it too, and it's uh, I put the hive in there too, because if you have an army that's hive and stingers, where are you actually putting your order marker? You're putting them on the hive, right? So, um, the next big category is uh, what I call the cheerleaders. If anything, I don't like the name of this category. Going back to it, is, but it is what I do. It is what I called it, and people had that's one term that people had been using already for Raylan and stuff. But the basic idea is that these are things you don't put order markers on. You you maybe move them a little bit, get to a position, and they boost your army. Um, so there's some like Raylan that you know are just considered good with a lot of different armies. Um, but you know also things that just boost movement or something like at Laga I consider in that category too because it kind of hangs back and boosts the speed of your army. And then the ones that are really good are the ones that are bond with melee units like your Sir Sir Gilbert or Marcus Decimus Gallus that. They provide these benefits, but also you don't even need to worry about putting order markers on them because you're already moving them through through bonding. Swag Rider is another one, that kind of stuff. Um, then uh, when it comes to the next categories, another co cool category, I colored them green, was the Defenders. The most prototypical version of this, or not, no, archetypical probably, would make more sense, is just the Death Reavers. You put a few order markers on them, time to time and they just tie down what the other guy is doing they can attack but that's not their purpose it's just to control the battlefield and control what other what other guys are doing and to defend your weaker units they pay very they play very well with the next category which i called sharks which i colored red the idea with sharks is that they're kind of like bread and butter units and that you can put all your order markers on them but they don't have very good defense they can't really take the hits on their own so it's good to have something else to protect them or you kind of have to keep putting order markers on them because if you run out of um, time, you know, they just kind of get wiped out. So, like, Cyprian Ezenwine is, even though he wasn't, when I wrote the article, he didn't even exist yet, I don't think. But he's one where, you know, he has to keep healing, keep damaging stuff, or else he's just down for the count. So you can't just put one order marker on him, one X, just stick him out there and just forget about him because they'll just kill him and then you'll, you'll wish you hadn't done that. Uh, you muted yourself. Yeah, I wasn't sure what else to say, um, oh. I, or if you had anything you want to say about, because uh, I kind of rattled through three categories there pretty quickly, um, or if I should just go through the rest of them now too. Um, I mean, I, I think you're probably. You're I think probably, you can go. Yeah, you just go probably go through them, James, and maybe we'll come back to each one individually. Okay. Sounds yeah, good. I think. Yeah, and I didn't mean. It's not like I was trying to jump in with the bread and butter. That's something I made a note though of, um, yeah. like I, I, I took notes when I was, uh, sorry, I took, but I took notes when I was reading your articles earlier. So, um, that was one of the specific things I took a note of because that stuck out to me. Um, I, it, but yeah, I would say just like, 
Dodgers hit the menacers, the cleanup in the uh, the niche. Yeah. Yeah. So then, so next up is menacers. Again, it's kind of a goofy name, but I I made them purple because they're kind of between a cool color and a warm color. If I think of red as being the attacking color and blue as a defending color, especially if you look at the dice in HeroScape again. So. Like these are units that typically attack three times per round per order marker. Stuff like Major Q9, Marrow Stingers, Minions of Utgar is a good example. I have the Krav Maga agents in here, but I'm I think they might actually really be sharks because you don't want to stop moving them. Um, but my general idea was things that have good offense and defense. Phantom Knights are another later example of those things. But like pro, you know, main example Q9 Stingers that kind of thing, where they have more they don't have as many attacks and they probably don't even do as much damage as some of the other ones but they have enough defense that you don't care if people attack them or if it's not as big a deal compared to the sharks then lastly is cleanup uh so cleanup typically only have one or two attacks the most like the best cleanup hero is like kamenawa he's a guy at the end of the game you can count on him to just pick off all those squad figures that are left over They'll often have a special attack or something else that just kind of gives them a leg up. Sondlin, I think, might have... Sondlin might be one, and so is, like, Savaris. Major Q10. And then there's cheaper ones like Guilty McCreech, Isamu, stuff like that. Um, but you should never... My, the big thing is I thought you should never build your army around this kind of unit. You should... Um, it's just, you, you know, if you have a good core especially like maybe something made with bread and butter squads, or if your base army had the death reavers and stuff like that, then you can kind of have one or two of these cleanup figures at the back of your mind to deal with things. I, th- I think I put Morrow warriors in there too. They're another example of a good late game unit. And it kind of just depends on your point total, what you're going to, going to play in that role. Uh, so I made those that dark red for cleanup. And then, I made one category just no colors. It's still in black, and I called it the niche units. It's basically just like counter drafting stuff or things that are only going to be good on certain maps, uh, stuff like or there's really kind of expensive and don't do don't do that much. Things like Kimoshi, Major X17, uh, Moore's Bane was an example, especially before uh, the Elf Wizards came out with their whole, you know, kit and caboodle. Um, so. And then uh, my, my conclusion there was that order markers uh, really matter when designing your army. And w- what really brought it home for me is I like I had this 500-point army I made against my friend one time. I was playing two squads of Romans, two squads of 4th Mass, Marcus, uh, me, Burks, I think, and Airborne Elite. So right away, if you read the article and kind of see the problem there, there's just too many things to put order markers on. You know, and everything kind of gives you four attacks. So it's like, there's just kind of get this. I said, uh, everything in here is A or A minus. Why am I struggling with this army? I don't even remember what I was facing that my friend had, but I remember just having order marker headaches. Like, I didn't want the airborne to drop. And when they did, I was like, okay, well, what am I actually going to activate? And it's because the airborne are sharks and they don't necessarily play that well with other bread and butter units. And even in that army, there's two different bread and butter squads. Like you only have two squads of each, and one's being kind of used as a defender, and the other being used as range. And it's, I don't know, it was, it was less than ideal, I think, to have that many things to put order markers on. Do Do you think units can bounce between different categories, James? Like, do you think you can use Cayman Awa as a shark? Do you think you can use, um, 
I'm try, uh, uh, I think you have Mogram up there as maybe a cheerleader. You're you're All spoiling right. you're spoiling uh, Article Four. Ah, crap! So I get for not <laughs> reading it. Yeah, okay, so yeah. That, that, that's kind of what the other article like. Uh, we'll get into the other article soon, but uh, yeah, Article yeah. Four was about this idea that the roles shift. Okay. And there was a great example in uh, that of like my opponent using Kamenawa early game because I brought out Nilfheim, um, where it's like the matchups kind of shift in a certain way to the point where you're going to activate guys at different points based on what your opponent's army composition is or what your own army composition is. Um, and then like one of my favorite examples is like I colored Krug like three different colors because he's one of my favorite figures, but also because... You know, Krug with no order markers on or no wounds on him, he's green. He's a meat shield. Just put him up there and get him to take hits. But once he starts taking damage, you've got to activate him, you know? Yeah, that's a great point. The, um, the you know, the colors and what they function as, like, can not only shift between game to game when you're in a tournament, but actually within the same game. I think of it a lot with, like, Gilbert and a couple of knights. You want, we really want Gilbert to stay alive for most of the game with knights, but if you're down to three or four knights, you have to preserve those order markers, and all of a sudden Gilbert might turn into a defender where you actually run him into the front, he's tying down units so your knights can stay alive and you can preserve those attack for order markers. So, you know, the shift between your shark now, your defender there, your cheerleader now, defender there, is I think one of the hugest dynamics of Heroescape that it's kind of difficult to talk about and it's really nice that you provided this framework even like 13 years ago because it's just a great framework to talk about pretty much anything in competitive scape can fit into this larger framework and we just have like terms that talk about units earlier easier yeah i definitely agree with that um it uh, i'd like for us to get through the first or the the next two articles first before really getting to like the closing thoughts about like how because i think we all have quite a bit to say about like how they shift um because i think that's one how units shift i think is largely or at least partially based on maps um so so yeah so so looking at this um i think the only category that's kind of uh a little lacking is so so the niche is pretty much bad units right like when, when you look at the list of niche units not not fully but you got like the zute you got the obsidians you got the yeah. Templar, like and and the thing is like it's kind of what you guys are talking about in your episode nine where you're talking about like exploring the lower tiers of units in those 330 point games or whatever that ken Khan was doing where it's like there are a lot of units i just didn't play necessarily and or or and it's just kind of like well I guess they work this way, but maybe Zute are really menacers. They're just bad ones or whatever it is, you know? Um, uh, so so I, I think I kind of just threw my hands up at some point and just said, look, you probably just shouldn't play these because I was still kind of of that competitive mindset. But it doesn't help people with a limited collection or someone just wanting to use those units. So, um, and there are some things that I did put down as a defender, like Tandros Creel, which I was really surprised at your take on how much you liked him, just because I... You know, in 2011, nobody would have played Tandros Creel in like a main, uh, you know, a main event tournament. But um, it's interesting to see that like the that people are still exploring the the space, I guess. Um, but niche units, yeah, that's probably another weakness of the article for sure. 
Well, and specifically, I think the one, um, I guess my, I don't think it's wrong to have that category. I will say, though, that your conclusion that you bring up top is so black units should be avoided while making pre-made armies. But I think there are certain units within the niche unit category right now that that's not quite true for. Specifically, you have the Wormlings there. And I definitely think there are armies where the Wormlings fit in because they're so good at targeting that that thing that they do target like black wormlings are really great against phantom knights they're really great against crab they're really great against you know just uh minions sentinels you name it they're just they're just so good at what they do so if my army needs a crab counter i very well may consider three squat or three black wormlings to counter the crab you know so i um I guess I guess it's really just kind of the black wormling though. I mean, I do think white wormling is a great counter to like tenth uh, regiment. I think white wormlings have a great uh, chance into the tenth reg with their four defense and being able to shred them fairly easily. If assuming they don't have Raylan, if they have Raylan, it's not not so good. But so I guess the follow up question then is with something like black wormling is what stage of the game do you typically use them against the Kramaga agents? Are they more like a late game thing, or do you just rush them out right away and try to hope for the best with the Krav or well, I mean, so assuming I'm only running around three black wormlings, which is usually what I would run, and uh, I mean, maybe you run like a mix, you run like two red, two black, maybe even a white or something, which is what you see a lot of people doing, like Doc or whoever, and kind of how I, I'm not a fan of one wave, two wave armies, so I wouldn't necessarily rush them out or save them for cleanup. I would develop everything up kind of together, and then whenever they try to use the Krav, I have the threat of the Black Wormlings always active. So if I've, if I've already developed them up a little ways and I'm developing up my whole army with them as well, whenever the Krav, when, whenever I see those Ord Markers go on the Krav, I can I can know, okay, like I can just throw one Ord Marker around on the Black Wormlings, gas something else, doesn't really matter. But then if the Krav ever do try to activate, I can, I can hit them if that makes sense. No, it does. I'm just, yeah. I mean, I, I was, I don't know if you... I'd probably have to look at my armies again too, but I was even reluctant a lot of times to use cleanup heroes, you know, because I was very much like, this is my army, this is what it's going to do. And then, you know, so that was just kind of my style. I think I, I don't think I thought as far ahead as thinking, okay, what is the worst matchup for this army? Okay, it's Krav. Krav is my problem. I need to get some Black Wormlings to deal with that, you know, like, and I think that's just a cool thing that there are units that are viable in that way. Because a lot of times you have something like, because the before you had something like Black Wormling, it was like Sudima or something. It's like, oh, I need to auto kill something. I'll get Sudima or Braxis. You know, they call like these huge point investments to do that kind of thing. And then I don't know, but so and but the fact that they have two activations kind of tends me to think they're more of a clean, quote unquote cleanup unit with the Wormlings, and I could see changing that. But I don't know. Well, <laughs> and I don't want to take too much credit for. I definitely don't want to take credit for that type of stuff, but I think the big reason why we've explored stuff like that is reverse the whip. Um, reverse the whip has lowered the level of the meta, but it's also shifted how armies are built. So, um, for for example, my what I consider my first interesting army I ever took to a reverse whip event was in 2015. I brought Elta Hale, which countered big guys like Q9, which I actually did end up killing a Q9 on day one with Elta Hale. Um, it was 2015. People are still playing Q9 main, uh, and then I had Concan 
two squads of Phantom Knights and two squads of Warriors of Ashra. And my thinking was kind of like, okay, well, I have Eltail for big things. I have the Phantom Knights for their their bread and butter range, especially backed with Concan. Um, I also have Concan with the Phantoms to beat up on bigger stuff. And then I have the Warriors of Ashra for, for melee. So that was... Um, and, and I won't, I'm definitely not saying I'm the first one to have done this. That's kind of when it got onto my radar. And now I think it's really evolved though, where to, you look at all these, you look at what Nathan's doing, you look at what William's doing, um, you look at what, what a lot of people are doing now and they're, they're kind of matchup smoothing. They're saying, okay, I, I have this core group of figures and now I'm going to throw in this to counter that, you know? Um, so like, like, for example, I love Arkmer as a tech now too. Arkmer is great into melee. So if I, if I have 50 points and I need something that can handle melee, like Arkmer is, is right up there for, for a figure I would use, you know, assuming you don't want something as busted as Mara warriors. Right. So um, I think that's really where these, these units do ha- struggle a little bit though. Is like, you would never, you it's hard to do the stuff that we do in reverse the whip in like generic cheese events because if you're playing against five squads of knights if you're playing against four heavies grimnack like or five five fourth or crap ton of rats and raylin and q9 like you have to be so efficient at what you do to win those matchups that it's tough to do this teching but at, if the meta is weaker, you can do a lot more interesting stuff, I think, with how you build your armies and how you play your armies. Well, yeah, I think it goes back to kind of the core of what's an order marker. It's um, order marker efficiency. There's an opportunity cost. Whenever you're putting an order, an order marker on any unit, you could be putting on any other unit in on your game. So when you're playing, you know, these knights heavy builds, Every order marker, you need to be moving four figures in a bonding hero. You need to be attacking with four figures from height, and they're so efficient. But as the reverse of the whip meta kind of drags the meta down, you can be less efficient with your order markers, which allows units that not really in play that shouldn't. But I think going back to the Black Wormlings counter Krav, I think this is a new kind of way we're thinking about it with reverse the whip, but I think it still fits into that overarching archetype of what's an order marker because in this situation there's sharks you kind of wait up and then once you start activating them then you go after but the really good sharks are usually can go after an entire army when you're playing just back wormlings and a crop they're sharks but they're only good against a specific type of army so it still kind of fits the overall archetype and i think you could also do like subgroups of certain things like if we want to go back to um bread and butter kind of you could make a subgroup where there is the they're both bread and butter, but you have bread and butter commons, and then you have bread and butter kind of commander units. So there's a lot to explore in any of those. But my question for you, um, James, is now that there's been a long time passing with that, do you think you would add any other um, parts of the game or um, any other, what are they, like terms, like menacers, sharks? Would you combine any or anything like that? Or do are you pretty happy with how it turned out? Uh, I'm mostly pretty happy with it. I think, I think in a lot of cases for what you're actually using them for, you could maybe combine Menacer and Bread and Butter. Like the main difference with those is that Bread and Butter typically had four at four attacks and Menacers had three is kind of the thing. But ultimately a lot of times you end up using order markers on them a lot. You know, something like a Q9, like Major Q9, I don't know. He could potentially just be your army. He's so good. You know, you just throw them out there, throw a ton of order markers. But, I mean, maybe there still is something, like, noticeably different between him 
and you know like your fourth mass or whatever because they're not the squad figures you know so maybe the order marker maybe all the categories do make sense the only other one is that like cleanup is really just like a late game shark it's just a, it's like a shark that works now you know what i mean you don't want to use them early because they don't usually don't have as many attacks it's just a lower priced budget shark and often like a unique one ends up being a cleanup hero i like that way to put it just like a late game shark that's i mean that's you're right that really is what they are once you get like me burks to go and Amara warriors going you have to keep them moving and stuff and you kind of have to make that call i think a lot of the times is when do you abandon your bread and butter unit when do you abandon your menacers and go to cleanup and that's a that's a when to flip that switch is not easy and it's i think where a lot of people can kind of stray in matchups i've definitely done that and started working on a samu when i could have gotten squeezed a little bit more utility out of my knights or heavies or something i also think that just looking Looking at these, James, um, fairly, and I don't say fairly quickly. I did look at them earlier today, but I think that I think this. So when you talk about like skill level or player skill or um, player ability, I think the sharks is kind of where that shines the most because I think those are the ones you can you can misplay the most. Like bread and butter is kind of. I mean, you can still obviously misplay them, but if you have five squads of fourth mass putting your order markers on the fourth mass and moving one guy poorly is not the same thing as moving Nilfheim poorly. Yeah. So, so I think player, player skill, player ability shines, shines through the most with sharks. Um, and I think bread and butter helps mitigate. So, so like for newer players, I think bread and butter can help mitigate um, mistakes you make. If that makes sense. Um, yeah. They almost have like a built in catch it mechanic. There's so low variance in terms of like well there's not not low variance but just like low low downsides to making a bad move because if you lose a gladiatron or whatever it's like oh no big deal yeah and I also think in some aspects that like depending on the cheerleader the cheerleader can make or break a game too and we we actually talked about this in the last podcast a little bit quite a bit about Raylan um, I know it hasn't been released yet for you but um, how when you when you put that second order marker on Raylan sometimes that can cost because you talked about how that's costing activations. That can cost you five activations with the knights or eight activations with the trons. So, um, so I think that that sometimes can play into like uh, player skill and abilities when when you move those cheerleaders. Now, taking a quick look at the cheerleaders, I'm not sure it matters more than just Raylan because a lot of these cheerleaders are already doing their stuff without having to put activations on them. Maybe Estevara you have to move up once, but the nice thing is she's got kind of a ranged attack. Um, I guess Nikita agents, but Nikita agents could also could also be sharks in some aspects as well. But but I guess we're going to talk about that later. But um, so I don't know. I, I think like but mainly sharks, but because ministers, as you talk about, they've got higher defense. So sometimes you can just uh, block a couple things you need to block, and it, like if you make a big big mistake with them, it might not it might not show through overall. Yeah, like minions are like a classic example of ministers to me too. Just like these big dudes that just like. They can take they can take a lot of beating potentially, or but you know they're also not going to be throwing four attacks a turn. They're not going to be able to wipe out common squads as quickly either. Um. Yeah, the way I think of menacers versus sharks is one of the ways is menacers kind of have that threat range. Like if minions are sitting there, I do not want to be within four spaces of that. If Hydra's been there, I do not want to be within well six because of reach. And even putting just one order marker on them, even if it's an X, it's just scary. They just control an area. Whereas even a shark, I might be able to risk going closer to them and 
because they might, you know, there's a higher upside or they're lower defense, so I can get through them and stuff. But minions, I run up there, even if I get first strike, they could just be, they'll take it with their six or seven defense sites at height and just hit me right back. So managers kind of control an area. That's at least how I think of it. Yeah, and another thing to think about, too, is that, um, well, like, you know, sh- like you were saying with Sharks, they definitely play well, like they show player skill more, but you can also just kind of, fudge that a bit by just playing death reavers like the defenders are the natural like helper to the sharks you know so you put a bunch of death reavers out there it helps out your sharks and like potentially clean up heroes and stuff whereas because like the bread and butter units want so many order markers that's why they play best with Raylan, because Raylan, you may put one or two order markers on in a game if that i've seen i remember there were some maps that were so small people would leave Raylan in their starting zone you know um yeah, and that, that's an unfortunate. Yeah, that's kind of, I think, <laughs> an older school style maps. I think a lot of new style maps, if I see a map where I don't have to remove, use Raylan, I probably don't want it in the Gen Con pool. But my question for everybody is I think we're all in agreement that Death Reavers are the best defender. And I think they're almost too good compared to second place. But what do you guys think is the second best defender? Because I think that's a little more up to debate. And why do you think it's the second best defender? Gladiatrons? Yeah, I was going to say it's a little more niche, but Gladiatrons are, are probably up there. We, we, sh- we should do a third, not not second, Gladiatrons. <laughs> yeah, I think you I forgot that they were. I, I really like Dividers. Um, I'm a big Morrow Divider fan. Um, yeah, but I, I, I don't know if they're the best, because I'm obviously 100% biased, because I think Death Reavers and, and Gladiatrons are lame. Um, not lame as in they're not good, but just lame as in I, I don't like playing against them. I don't know. Well, I was thinking um, Nigax has got to be up there with um, five, you know, five life, six defense. You can throw them in Roman builds and even, and he'll just tie so much up and you just don't want to start attacking him. So kind of like the Gladiatrons, he's a little more niche. He's only in certain armies, but you're bang for your buck as a defender. one of the highest. The, the downside is he's single space, one activation, so he's can, he can only tie up so much. But that's yeah. probably my pick. Yeah, when you come, when especially when you open up to heroes, I, I'm just so squad centric sometimes. But yeah, Nagax is really good for 90 points. He's absurd. I mean, he's got a, like he's basically got the same survivability as Q9, except he's not large. But you know, if you think five life, five life, six defense versus you know four life, seven defense, it's not that different. <laughs> and he's half the price, um, which is why like Val, poor Valgard. <laughs> Well, yeah, Valgar. poor Valgar. Valgar is really good too, and he's really tough. He's just Nigaxa. What are you gonna do? Well, Scotty Pippen syndrome. <laughs> exactly. If they cost the same, it would be a real like debate on which one to bring, right? But the fact is, you're never gonna pay 20 more points to downgrade your Nigaxa to Valgard. Like that's just not a thing. He's uh, Valgard. He's Tandros. He's four defense with seven life. He can also smack stuff with five dice. Like he's really. I think he's really quite good, but um, yeah. he, he's I, just it's just hard to justify the extra 20. I brought him to the main event in 2015, the one time one of the times I came back and I made day two, going only three and two. I barely made it, but I did fight a Q9 because people were, someone was still running it and Valgard like he'd run up, hit Q9, run to the starting zone, kill a couple fourth mass, run back to Q9, hit him for five. You know it worked. Um, I don't know. He's 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 he's. I mean. Yeah. But that's another one where it's like, is he a 
is he a, I mean, most of the time he's a, uh, he's a, a green, he's a defender cause he's there, but I guess you could think of him as being more of like a menacer or something too, just because he has the offensive potential. Yeah, I, I think he definitely is a hybrid menacer defender and he can play multiple roles and he doesn't, he's not like amazing at either, but he's good at, he's pretty good at both, which there is some, something to be said about it being able to fit in multiple areas to be, I, I think for me, the my probably my favorite defender um, is going to be Tandros. I Tandros, you put him in a spot, and he says, "I own this spot. Uh, this is this is my turf." Because you combat challenge four defense seven life. He's just you just don't want to waste. He's just like Valgard. You don't want to waste the attacks on Tandros. It feels so bad to attack an opponent's Tandros. Just like I hate playing against Valgard more than anything, just because it feels so, and Nagoxa, it just feels so bad to attack them, um, especially Nagoxa, because it's not like Nagoxa is really doing that much most of the time, uh, so he's just like dead space, but Tandros, you put him next to a figure you want protected, and that combat challenge is really something, it's it's really quite good in my opinion. Um, I will say on defenders, though, uh, I think somebody mentioned earlier that they thought defenders kind of, they kind of, uh, lessen the skill needed to play sharks and i'm not quite sure i agree with that i'll i'll say rats do but i don't i think defenders outside of rats and obviously gladiatrons because they just bond with blastatrons i think defenders are actually not as easy to play as people think um the non-rats one i think obviously scatter can really make up for some positional mistakes but for the other ones like especially having played a lot of tarn recently in the last couple years like i really need to know where i want my tarn or else or else I'm going to have to use them again. And using Tarn, obviously you get to attack with them as well, but you, you really, you don't get the, it's, it's kind of like Q9 versus a shark is like, you can screw up with Q9 and he's still not going to die. It's the same thing with rats. Like you screw up, put them in the wrong place. doesn't matter. You're going to have a rat to the right place soon enough. Um, I don't know. What are your guys thoughts on that? That's, that's kind of my take on defenders. Yeah, I would say there's the, the hybrid army, it's usually like the defenders, menacers, or defenders, sharks. You can have like divide. I play dividers, Skahan, or you can play, you know, sentinels mixed with other things. And I think that is a delicate balance. You go like kind of two on your defender, one on your shark or menacers. You go like, or can you afford to put just one order marker on the defender or zero order markers? I think those are tricky. It's just unfortunate that there's no. Rats are so good that it becomes kind of easier to play with them, and then all the other ones are not quite good enough. I don't think any um, hot defender army with multiple defenders mixed with the Sharks or Menacers are quite in that tier one army. Yeah, I mean, so we're talking about the bread and butter. They're not quite there, but they are pretty difficult to play. Another unit we haven't talked about too much yet, I know it's probably Ken's least favorite unit, is the Warriors of Ashra. <laughs> they're pretty, and, uh, they're uh, awfully high in my power rankings. <laughs> But, like, they, I mean, they're, like, a classic defender, but, it like, they're slower than Krav, which are another similar idea of, like, the anti-range range unit. You have your anti-melee melee unit. And, um, I don't, they're, but they're actually, they're also common, which is good. I know you use them, um, in, uh, when you played a few elf wizards, right? You played a couple squads of those, too? Yeah, yeah. So that was kind of, um, I mentioned previously my 2015 army. This was 20, 
2018 was when I brought um, a very similar build of Concan, two Phantom Knights, two Warriors of Asher, but then I also threw in Jordan, Arkmer, and Kintella Gwyn. So no Olganesh. Uh, and our, it, the theory was that the Warriors of Astra were going to be a nice melee screen and they were going to buff Arkmer, which they did. They did that very well. But the problem was that year I only hit range armies in the non-reverse whip matchups. So the Warriors of Astra, that's that's the difference between the Warriors and the Krav and why the Krav are so much better is the Krav can still do stuff against melee. In fact, they're pretty good against melee because of that seven range. You know, most melee's five move. Seven range means even on a flat map, they're still and six and six move means that they're still unable to get caught if you play them correctly. I mean, obviously, eventually they'll get cornered, but Warriors of Astro are the opposite. Warriors of Astro just die into range. That's that's kind of their their big problem. Um, they just they just melt. Three defense, three activations just does not do enough with five move. I think if they had six move, it would be quite a bit better. Um, but so- but going. Oh, go for it. No, I just had a quick question because you're talking about Krav yeah. again. Would, do you think that they're more sharks or menacers based on... I I think sharks. I think sharks usually, at least based on how I've seen them played most, is kind of once they start going, you got to keep kiting with them because you can't let them get caught, you know? Because it's, yeah, that's but gonna... Yeah, but you also play melee armies too, Michael, so they have to be sharks against melee. If they're if they're fighting hmm. against fourth mass or something, they can be more menacers. Um so I, 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 so I mean, in part of it, like part of a part of HeroScape, right? James plays a very different game than I do as well. So like, so sometimes he'll, you know, he'll put things that you're like, well, I don't think that quite fits, but that's just because we just play two different styles, and one's not necessarily better than the other, but it's just a different style of play. Um, I mean, obviously my knights are bread and butter because, I, I mean, and what's what's hilarious to me about this, what's in the order marker is, you guys all know that I I love. I love getting a lot of attacks in, and I love not thinking very hard when I place my order markers. Um, so, um, so this is so this is actually super interesting that you know there's a lot of thought for like all the pod the pod type armies you guys play, which is really just a weaker version of, of these other armies that are still kind of you know that uh, James has all these armies listed like um, on the, after the first this first uh, article. There's probably half a dozen or a dozen armies listed here that, you know, which, which they're still essentially pod style armies because of all the different units that do different things. They have different jobs that they do, which is kind of what you guys are doing just on a way weaker level uh, or a reverse the whip style level to be fair. Cause I don't think you guys are going to play that in a, you know, a straight up normal 500 point 24 hex old school beat them down tournament. Yeah, I will say, though, that at least for myself, I have um, I kind of have my own group of categories as well. So the, I think the difference between uh, this What's an Ore Marker, we have really six, really kind of five main categories because cleanup pretty much fits within, largely within sharks, um, as I think James nicely put it before. And again, these are just usually just kind of bad. Um, and unexplored, I guess, would be maybe a also a better way to put that than just just saying they're bad although they're they're usually not that good um but i i at least for myself i have my own set of categories that i think are about nine or ten distinct categories so when i'm building my splash armies it's not quite as um it's not quite the same uh 
but I feel like that's probably a topic for another day. But it's it's but kind the, of more the, specified. But the, but the concept is still there. The concept is very much still there, right? Right. Right. Cool. So, so we, no, no, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, do we want to move on to our uh, order marker two? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Um, so this one, there was this silly movie like, Dude, Where's Your Car? And <laughs> I, I wrote, Dude, Where's Your Ex? Order markers part two. So it was just discussing um, where where it makes place where it makes sense to place your ex. Um, I'm gonna get into some stuff about anticipating your opponent's movement and what you're trying to do. Um, and like the broad rule is that you want to put your ex either on like your defenders or your menacers, because you want your ex is where you want your opponent to attack, and your your one is where you, you're for sure going to get an activation. Twos and threes, you want to put on something that you expect to be healthy at the end of the round. And I also kind of said to um, to assume you might lose initiative, to not just think, hey, I'm going to win initiative, I'm going to do all this stuff, because if you put all your order markers on something, or even two order markers on something that's about to die, it's probably not a good call. But a lot of this really doesn't come into play to like the last rounds, which I think are the most interesting part of any HeroScape game is when you're down to like the last few things and you're kind of just trying to figure out how to scrape a win together. Um, but I guess if you're running these sort of pod armies, you have to think a lot more about your order markers throughout the game. Um, and the other like big rule, as I say, don't put your three and your X on your same space unless you got a good reason for it. Like Because once you've seen the one and the two, you know where the third turn is going to be. Basically. Definitely. Uh, definitely. Yeah. Can, can we back up just a little bit, though, to the one of the first parts? So uh, part B is take a second look at your army, just because I think this right here is, in a nutshell, the most important part of um, kind of evaluating whether or not an order marker was good. Like, did it do what you want so uh, real quick, basically, you take a second look at your army before you start playing. Ask yourself three questions about every card in it. Will an order marker on this get me a lot of offensive power? If I choose not to put an order marker on this, is it still useful? Is this the best unit to fill this role in this army for available points? And if you can't answer at least two of those with yeses, then you should probably find a replacement. I think that's I think that's a really really concise way of putting it. Basically. I mean, that's kind of the problem with all these non-rat units, right, is like you're always better off with rats. But even beyond that, the problem with other units is sometimes just it can't do enough offense. Like you look at Sudema. Sudema can't do enough offense, isn't useful when you uh, don't put an order marker on her, and is never good for her points. Or I guess never won't say never good, but you're always better off finding something else for the points. So... That's, I mean, and obviously that's an extreme example, but I mean, I think that's a really, really important thing to look at. And I think going back to that army you had previously talked about with the Airborne, with the 4th Mass, with the Romans, is sure, they were all providing offense. But outside of the Romans, none of them are very good when you don't put order markers on them. And all of them would have been probably better off, or at least most of them would have been better off as points invested in more copies of the other one so either going full romans and fourth or romans with uh airborne which i think is actually pretty good because the romans are more of a screen in that 
army. Um, but it's just a redundancy in that army that makes it so where you're not going to be getting value out of those cards. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that's something I haven't read that concisely in probably a long time, but it's just, it boils down the very complicated aspect of army making and just, uh, you know, one, two, three. And it's, you know, if you follow that, you're at least going to have a decent army or you're at least not going to have just some catastrophic failure of an army where you're sitting there and half your army is just sitting in your starting zone the entire time. And you're looking at it, you realize it's never been worth putting an order marker on there the entire time. And then they're useless. Yeah, and I think just like, I mean, and the, the, then the final part I said is if you can't answer yes to both, find a replacement. So I was always like relentlessly making new armies and just like cutting things and I don't know. I, I would I would spend a lot of time just trying to come up with a few armies to test out, and then if something didn't work in testing, try something else. But um. and one of the things I really like you're on point six is be ballsy from time to time, but not too ballsy, and that's kind of like risky order markers, things like that. So what do you guys think are times when it's okay to kind of break the rules above and go for some riskier plays? When what you're doing is not working. Um, I mean, and that's the bottom line, right? Like if the position you're currently in is not going to win your, win you the game, change something. Um, I, I mean, even at Ken Con, I was playing with newer guys and we were in a, one of my buddies, Justin, super smart guy, but he just wasn't getting hero scape. So I kind of, we kind of had like a tutorial match where like before every move, we talked about his options and whatnot, um, and what he could do. And then, and then there was one game where, he was he was he was ahead, and I had a couple <clears throat> draw chain fighters left. But um, in, in the current position I was in, I was going to lose. So I said, so I so I had so I could disengage the chain fighter and try and get the battle where I wanted it to be. So Justin and I kind of talked about that quite a bit, and I said, now there's a 50% chance you're going to kill the chain fighter, and I'm going to lose. But if I stay in the current position I am, I'm going to lose probably anyway. So I, I actually took the disengage and I ended up winning the game with one with one character left. And it was that chain fighter that disengaged. But that's but that's when you got to because what you know that's what people do. Like um, you know sometimes you got to triple disengage if you if you need to because you got to you got to make a better choice. And I think that there can be something similar with the order markers. Like maybe you need a risk. Maybe you need to basically if you don't win initiative, you're not winning the game anyway. So you need to win initiative. So you're going to play like you're going to win initiative. Because if you don't, and, and uh, you know, Niflheim's got one hit point left, but um, he's, he's adjacent to Q9, he's got height on him, but, but do you put your order markers on Niflheim to try and take out Q9, or do you put them on, you know, your knights in the back so they can come, start, come up and start banging on Q9, and, but, you know, so things like, I think things like that, like, what do and you do there? Might, that might be a case, too, where you might put your 3 and your X on the same spot. Like stick your one on Nilfheim and then put two, three X on the knights. So then they think, oh, he just got his X on his Nilfheim and ignores him. You know? Yeah, I was going to chime in and just say um, that I actually kind of like putting my three and X on the same spot sometimes because a lot of people never expect it to um, someone to do that. So it can throw people off on the first two order markers. 
Yeah, I think it's that really is um, um, better the farther it is in the game, where in the late game, picking the wrong order marker to go after can be pretty catastrophic. Because in the late game, usually if you pick right, they're losing activations or losing that figure. So the, the, the 3X is kind of like, it's bad, so it's good, because it's like, I know that he knows that I know, and then that's when you start kind of getting in that weird mind game thing, which is... It's hard to really like analyze that. That's just it's the Princess Bride, where the poison yeah. is. Yes, it exactly is, which is fun. That's what order markers are. It, it's something I enjoy a lot. Yeah, and I in in this part six, I used a couple examples, and the one I used, I had a Krug with no wounds on it, and a, a single Venak Viper sitting alone, and. I figure my so I put my two three and X on the unwounded Krug and my one on my Vinok Viper, thinking they're just not gonna think about it. And they actually disengaged from that Viper, attacked something else, and then my Viper went and killed a couple guys with a frenzy. But like the unwounded Krug wasn't in position to hit anything, so I was like, well, I'll just put my two and three on him, and it ended up working out. Obviously, um, you know, it doesn't always work out, but. That's kind of a situation where I had a, a unit that wasn't going to do that much anyway. Might as well take a shot with the Vinok Viper that they didn't see coming. I have I have two things I want to bring up here with the ballsy, um, when to be ballsy. I definitely agree with Ken wholeheartedly. I do think it can be expanded even more, that there are certain matchups where entering, you're not going to be able to play the standard way you play. Like You need something extraordinary to happen because of the matchup um I'm, I'm trying to like let's say you're playing braxis into hounds or you're playing I, I don't know just just any bad matchup for your army you're going to have to play risky earlier on because if you just play it like a standard a standard game it's just not going to work um and if if that means you go for higher variance plays earlier to to get you on top in that game or at least to break like if if you start a game and you're like this is a 2080 or something or even worse than that maybe you that 20% doesn't just like i i think kind of a misconception is like oh this is a 2080 for me um what is that like kind of what does that mean and i think Personally, what I've come around to thinking it means, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I guess, uh, is that it's not that you're going to win 20% of the time if you do the same thing every time. It's that your 20% lies in an outrageous chance you have to make work. And then you have to, but but the way you make it work isn't by doing this. I mean, sometimes it is, don't get me wrong, but sometimes it, that 20% doesn't lie in your standard play patterns. Instead, maybe your standard play patterns only gives you a 10%. Does that make sense? Or So it's like Doc playing against me in order for him to win. He's got to, <laughs> he's got to play more, he's got to play more ballsy um, order marker management. I think uh, Adam, uh, when you're listening to this, you should keep that in mind. <laughs> Jeez, okay. <laughs> That's fired. Yeah, really. But they, but they always are. Let's be real with, with those two. And I, I think, think that kind of makes sense. I think so, some of my problems in other games have stemmed from thinking like, oh, this is a bad matchup, and I'll just try to play it like I play other matchups, and I just lose every time. Like, I don't know, like in Summoner Wars. Nah, anyway, we don't need to talk about that. But there was a certain matchup that was really bad, and I would just think, eh, I would just lose it probably worse than 20% of the time, you know. Um, well, yeah. I think a good, I think a good example, James, is like fire elementals versus melee. 
like you got to play melee way different when you're playing against fire elementals than you do um, almost every other every other matchup because like if you play it normally you're just gonna lose so you've got to play against the fire elementals way different yeah or like i don't know um might in um th- there's an army that i'm talking about in the next article where like i, I there's a game where i was playing against uh jormy um and he had like sentinels of jandar Kramaga agents and i had cyprian you know, and I had Cyprian and rats. So I just clogged his stuff with rats and just kept attacking with Cyprian. And he never took a single disengagement. So maybe, like, that's the kind of plays you're talking about where you need to just do some things that are a little risky to try to get those attacks off or something. Definitely. the You're not winning this game. The onus is on you to make a play. And I think that's a lot of it is being scared of making a play. Like, like, going back to Ken, I think a lot of people with their last figure with one life left with the Drow Chain Fighter, they're not going to want to take a disengage there and lose, just losing on your turn. So a lot of these moves, when we say play ballsy, if they, if they uh, don't work out, you're probably going to lose worse than if you stayed the course. But even though you're going to lose worse, the chances of you winning the game is actually higher. So you can't think about, like, oh, I tried this risk and it didn't work this time. In the long run, if you do that risk in a similar situation 100 times, will you end up winning 30 games? And if you stay the course, would you only win 20 games? So it's just kind of taking those risky plays and not really thinking about them in just one instance, but thinking about them overarching multiple, like over multiple tournaments long and making the right move over multiple tournaments long in mind. Or at least that's what I try to think about. I try to stretch out my thought, um, like my decision space as long as possible. Definitely. And like, I, um, like I can definitely think, so I think it was 2018. I, I, in the finals of monster mash, I was running a couple squads of heavies, only two squads of heavies because of, um, the, the restrictions of the format and then Grimnak, Nirak, Tornak and Nilfheim into, um, Q9 and, uh, Raylin, a couple squads of Grubs and Subakna, if I remember, if I remember correctly. Um, but anyway, so Q9 moved up and basically on his first turn picked off three heavy gruts in uh, all in Niraxora, two of which were next to Grimnak. So three v four and then two three v fives, just picked them off. At this point, I have five gruts left, right? And I'm like, man, I'm gonna lose this matchup. So my only play was to fly in Nilf. So, and Nilf ended up dying in two order markers, but he did enough because he flew in. He, he didn't do anything on his attacks with his attacks, but he tied up that Q9, which is the only thing I could ask for at that point is like, I needed to just lose my Nilf here in order for my heavies to close the gap. And then once I had the heavies closed to the gap, I have Tornak slamming into Q9. I have Grimnak chomping grubs. I'm able to break through the wall. I'm, I'm chucking four and five attack dice, uh, three to four turn, three to four times a turn. Everybody's uh, double, sometimes triple buffed um, between the three heroes. And but but like that suicide Nilfheim play, like that's not how. I, that's definitely not how I was originally going to use him. He was supposed to just kind of kite at the end, it clean up or whatever. Um, provide some range support during the game, but it ended up being the best, the, like 
when he did that, I was like, man, if he picks off another three heavies here, I just lose, right? If like if his next order marker, he kills three more heavies, I have two heavies left. I don't win this game. There's no chance. There is no heal glyph for Nilfheim. Um, Q9 is just going to be too tough, you know? And um, I think people just need to recognize that earlier in games. And I've definitely lost games because I didn't recognize that. And I've lost games where I did recognize it, went for the play, and still lost. I mean, that's, that's the nature of the game is when you make those high-variance plays because you're in a bad position – if it doesn't, if it doesn't go well, you were kind of like what Ken was saying. You were going to lose anyway, so who cares? There's no difference between losing poorly, like a really bad loss and a regular loss. Every loss is the same. It's just a loss. So if you're going to lose anyways, you gotta, you gotta figure out some way you can hopefully flip that. Well, James, I don't know if you remember th- this game, but uh, at at Tree Town, what was it, the fourth one or third one or fifth one? Uh, you had rats in Nilfheim, and I don't remember what else you had. Probably Raylan. I'm sure you had Raylan, because I don't know why you wouldn't play Raylan. But um, um, but I had all those knights, and I had to I had to dispatch away quite a few for disengage with rats, and and like you only hit one out of like five or six disengages. But that's how I ended up winning the game because there was no way I was gonna be able to fight through your rat screen to get to your to your Nilfheim, and then uh, later your Raylan. Yeah, it's the reason I'm two and nine against knights. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> and I remember, I don't. Remember, I I think it's that's one of those games you try to forget, you know. But, <laughs> but right, no. right. But yeah, yeah. I I don't remember the dis. I remember you trying to do like looking back. I just remember probably thinking like, why is he? Why am I not getting any of these uh, engagement strikes? But yeah. But like you said, that's just kind of what you had to do. Use dispatch to get the, the disengages out to. Um, Give yourself the best shot, and it worked. Because then you go, because I think I had Krav too, so you were able to like get to Krav agents that should have been safe but weren't, kind of thing. And I'd be like, oh, they're in Rayland's aura. It was a three on six. He shouldn't have killed it, but he did. <laughs> you know? like, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think you rolled. I think you rolled like maybe six shields the whole game. So. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, was that the year you lost to um, Eric? Eric's red coats. No, that that was the following year where he just annihilated me. That was on Annihilation Alley. Oh my gosh! No, that was the year I actually won it. So, oh, okay. One of the one of the times I actually won it. I won yeah, it. I, never, I never actually won Tree Town. I got second at least once, but but that's just based off point differential. You could go, you could lose your first game and then win the next five and still be considered second place at that one. So. Well, and you had talked about you had mentioned earlier about like. I mean, because obviously your mind for this game, even 13 years ago, uh, was super sharp, and uh, you know maybe even one of the sharpest minds of the game at the then. Um, and I know you haven't played for a while, but I, I feel like you could get back on the horse pretty easily if you wanted to. But then you, but then you say, you know, you always end up being four and one or three and two, and you you felt like that was kind of more like a. Do you think it was like a mismanagement of the battlefield? Um, like like what like what do you think like. I guess translate like like um, for how sharp your mind. I mean, obviously it can't always be dice, right? Um, Honestly, sure like you... when it comes to Gen Con, I was almost always tired. You know, like I don't, I do, I didn't sleep very well in in hotels, and you're almost like you're almost always cramming like five guys into a room and just like just not being on the best mental state. I think to be playing at the highest level at Gen Con for me. Um, but uh, even at these other tournaments, I'd usually travel pretty far to get to them. Most of the tournaments weren't in Illinois. They were in Iowa or someplace else. 
So I think um, I could have been sharper, you know, just based on that. Because, like, you know, Joe, Spider Poison, like, he won all these tournaments, but often when we'd play each other, like, the night before, I'd beat him, and he'd be like, maybe I shouldn't play what I'm playing. He's like, no, no, just stick with it. You'll be fine, and then he'd win, you know? Um, so, I don't know. That's interesting. I, so I think I think, I think think part of it's probably just, you know, taking care of yourself, sleeping enough. Yeah, that, that's a real thing at Gen Con. You're, uh, I definitely, we had a year, I think our second or third year, 2003, 2004 team, where we definitely uh, overslept for the team tournament because we were leaving, we were leaving Gen Con at like four or five in the morning and getting back and then like having to wake up at like 8.30. So we ended up uh, waking up from the uh, maid, knocking on our door at noon that we had to check out when we were supposed to be playing a tournament like three hours earlier. So it's, it's, uh, it's tough. I definitely had a, blundered pieces and things like that. I definitely blundered my nil fine to uh, Gordon DeRoche, where I like thought about it forever, and I just didn't even move him in my order marker and let the, hy- the Hydra come on from height, full-life Hydra, and just rain down on my nil fine for no reason when I had an order marker on nil fine. So it- it's tough out there. I feel you. Well, and even if you understand everything in the game, it's you're still going to have off games. Like... It- you look at any top player and they still have games where they could have played better. Um, and I mean, that's just kind of the nature of the game is you can know a lot about it and um, still you're going to, you're still going to lose some games. Um, I guess maybe for the three, I mean, I obviously don't want to speculate too much, but I mean, it, it's kind of one of those things where also knowing the theory behind everything and then applying it isn't always the exact same thing. So you can know a whole lot about a subject and then have still you're not going to be able to uh, apply it necessarily 100% in every circumstance, which is I, I imagine where also some of those dropped games probably probably came from. I mean, I know me like I, I studied a lot for X-Wing, like I, I was watching uh, games. I was I was thought I was really getting good and then I, w- I would do well, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't do as well as I thought I could. And it was just because even though I understood a lot of the theoretical, it's still just tough to be able to consistently put that into practice without just a lot of repetition, a lot of like uh, critique and stuff. And um, you're still, again, you're still going to lose games, but. And to be clear, and be clear, like I'm not, I I just want to make sure everybody understands that I totally think James is an amazing player. Um, this was no knock on James at all. It was just more like, like it was more like I talk about like um, uh, putting theory into practice, if that makes sense. So. Oh, I'm in I'm in the same boat too. I great. Obviously, he's a great player. I'm I'm honestly saying it as much for myself and HeroScape as well. Um, I this past Gen Con, I scrubbed out in a lot of tournaments, like one three, or uh, I, I think I went one and three in at least two tournaments, and. Um, this this past Gen Con and I was like, man, that what what is happening? Uh, and th- I mean that Thursday and that that Friday morning, I played horribly. I just didn't play well, you know. And that uh, Michael, and then- Michael, for the record, there was no past this past Gen Con. That would have been last Gen Con last year. Okay, whatever. The 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 last Gen Con we were all at, you know, you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just you're gonna you're gonna have bad games. That's and the I, nature of it. I also think sometimes I'd like on paper think an army was good and mm. it wasn't necessarily my style and I'd try, I'd, I'd play it anyway. It, like 
one year I went like two and three with like an army that had Q10 in it. I'd always say Q10 was bad, but then I still played him. And it's like, maybe it's just a figure I wasn't that used to playing. That was one when, when uh, what's his name? What was his name? Dillerbacher came. I lost to his knights, but that was like a time issue too. Like I had like 300 points left and he had like 400 points left after an hour. He was playing his knight. It was like knights versus rats. So it was just the slowest, you know, Jandar's dispatch knights moving rats around it was like the slowest match ever well and you and you actually seem at least locally um i don't know if you ever played him at at gen con but you seem to actually do really good with heavies Um, yeah and yeah there's like i think i had like two tournaments i actually did well with heavies so it's like i liked i liked orcs but i kept thinking because of mine and joe's rankings like "Eh, orcs aren't the top tier i should play something else i should play rats in this and then like i'd play heavy gruts at something and i'd win like i think i won in in nebraska at the skirmish or something playing heavy gruts one yeah i think you yeah i think you won one of my skirmishes yeah i remember that um because i was like you know what i'm just gonna play heavy gruts because they're fun and then because i was that was like i mean that was still before that might have been either the same year or like before you guys like took it to top four or whatever in the tournament where it's like people still, I mean, it sounds crazy today, but people didn't necessarily think Grimnack was that good, you know, because he wasn't ranged, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I was, I was trying to have a conversation with these two about that on a couple podcasts ago about like how, how it, it, and you, you were around then. And I mean, Cody, I think Cody might've been just done with kindergarten back then, but um, you know, these guys don't understand that like back in the day, like, it was like fourth mass and, and Q9 and rats and stingers. And that was it. Like it was unheard of to bring heavies. It was unheard of to bring knights. Um, and, 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 and these youngins just don't really, they, they never really got to uh, see that. It was just super interesting how now the current meta is knights and heavies are so good. And, and, and everybody agrees with it now, but back then they're like, ah, those guys, that's just a waste of whatever. And like, Romans had some decent amount of respect, but they were also kind of seen as being like not not good against Q9, so why take them kind of thing, you know? And then Zelrig came out and we're like, oh, well, Zelrig's going to kill Romans. You shouldn't play them. And it's just, but Romans would still win, would still win tournaments and be like, oh, that's cool. wonder how that happened. Because like, they're good. That's why. That's why that happened. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, back, back in the day, like UPC was winning with Romans in fourth mass. Yeah, and that's the army that I added Airborne to and really played poorly against Kyle. So I was like, oh, got to change this. Got to write an article to explain my, my my problems. Hey, and everybody loves the article. So I guess it was a win-win, <laughs> right? Well, maybe a lose-win. No, but like that, it's, it, that just kind of reminds you, like it's good to have someone to test against because he would almost always play the same stuff, but it was always good. So, like, whatever I would be testing would have to be good to beat it, essentially. Well, he, he just played a crap ton of fourth mass, if I remember. Yeah, he used to play Q9, too. He'd do, like, Q9, a bunch of fourth mass, maybe two squads of rats if the glyphs were good. Because that's the other thing you guys don't think about. Like, in the Iowa tournaments, maybe even to this day, like, the glyphs would be face down. Yes. You, would, you wouldn't know what yeah. they were. So he still does it, and so it, you'll still have the random attack glyph, yeah. Yeah, so you'd spend your first two rounds... You like you want to win initiative round one so you can get your rats onto those glyphs and see what they are. Because he'd have weird stuff in the pool like summoning glyph. Yep. You know he had it last year. <laughs> so it's like so so that tournament is like an encap- encapsulated in time since like 2007 or whatever. It's great. 
Is this Tree Town? About. Yeah, Tree Town Open in uh, Iowa. And then is Kyle? Uh, is that not uh, Boom? Yeah, K Boom. Yeah, cool. Kyle. Kyle, I haven't, I haven't seen him in a while, but we used to go to tournaments together. It was like me, him, and um, Joe used to ride together a lot of times, and then also the other Joe, uh, Clarissimus, would often be uh, with us too. That's a pretty um. good batch of scapers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, Joe would take down a lot of tournaments, and I would often try to play the same thing as him, or I don't know, or and not do quite as well. But yeah. So do we want to, do we have time? Do we want to talk about the last article or? We definitely want to talk about the last article, or at least I do. Um, <laughs> I do want to I do want to bring up one last thing before we move on though. Just um, one thing about order markers, I think in the end game that. I think is important to think about and really actually it was kind of my dad that turned me on to this was basically you, when do you switch over to that cleanup hero? Right. Is so like, let's say I have um, one squad of whatever that's up pretty far away and my cleanup hero is just sitting in my, in my start zone. Um, what, what should my order markers look like? Assuming that everybody's pretty much on their other side and really I'm kind of on team just put one, two, three on whatever is up there, maybe one, two X, because the the downside of you not using that cleanup here yet just isn't there, right? Like when they're sitting in your start zone, if they're assuming assuming they're not right outside your start zone, right? But assuming they're across the map, which is kind of how this sometimes works out, especially if you're playing like I, I guess one of the armies I'm thinking of is Venox, right? Venox with uh Venox Warlord in your in your start zone. It's like when you switch over to him, like a lot of times you just, I, at least I think you should just wait till the next round because it's not like he's really in any danger back there. So if if you get lucky with that that thing that's up there, or let's say it's just kind of like, oh, only if I get unlucky will this go poorly. It's kind of like, well, what's the downside if it does go poorly? It's not really there. So I, I just think that's one thing to, to mention. Um, I mean, definitely like getting a turn, maybe again, your order marker three, to develop up that cleanup hero just a little bit, like just one, one activation up, but you don't need to throw the X on whatever's up there because you're afraid to lose initiative and then throw one, two, three on the cleanup hero because it just doesn't matter at that point. You know, if you can get that last value out of those, those far up units, I, in my opinion, you should just go for it, you know? Yeah. I'd say if the map is big enough, that makes sense. Um, as long as you don't just get wiped, you know? Um, but if, if it's going to take them time to get to you anyway, you don't want to just do their work for them and move your guy closer, you know. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would agree. say. Oh, I would say that's highly contextual. I think that's one way to do it. But one of the things that I'll say is, you said, uh, if you don't put the order markers on them, they don't really have a uh, use. Like they they don't have value to when you switch over. But I kind of can disagree with that in certain situations because when you stop putting order markers on maybe your bread and butter, your sharks, and you will over to clean up, all those immediately, regardless of what they are, immediately turn over to defenders. Anything they're tying up, and you're not putting any more order markers on them, they're clogging past, they're tying up figures, maybe they're on a glyph. So it just depends on, are you bringing up a Venak Warlord that's melee? Are you bringing up more warriors that are ranged? Are your things that you're taking off of, do you expect them to be able to hold these positions for a little bit? So I think that is just completely dependent on game to game and I think all we can kind of tell you is what goes into our particular thought processes and so you can weigh it in each individual game and when you make that switch but I think that is an excellent point Mike and I about when to switch and everything 
And you're 100% right on Mara Warriors. Like, you're probably usually just going to switch to them. I guess I was thinking more like Marku, Isamu, Vinak, like those melee ones where it, nothing's going to happen, especially if they only have melee left too, um, which I guess that that's a common end state for my games, at least because I'm usually playing at least primarily melee, uh, maybe with a splash of range. That's usually what I'm playing. Um, so my, my end games oftentimes look like that. And I guess that's kind of where I am on that. But I definitely agree with you um, that a lot of times, you know, especially if you have Marl Warriors, like you just get them up and start shooting. <laughs> so... So yeah, I mean, I think we're I think we're good now to move on to the the final article, which is how order marker roles change, which I, is I think a really really interesting topic. Um, I think that was before I saw this, I was like, man, this is the big thing that your ma- your main article was missing, and then I see, wait, you've written a supplementary article that nobody's heard of though. So um, this will get linked obviously in the description, all this stuff, and hopefully we can generate some new discussion in these threads because these are great. So, so James, you want to tell us about um, your shifting roles article? Sure. Um, so again, um, I broke it down into a few sections. Uh, the first section was how your own units affect order marker usage. So that's just army construction. The second section was how your opponent's units affect order marker usage. And then the last was how glyphs and other factors can affect your order marker decisions. So I'll go first with how your own units affect it. So I, 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 I talked a little bit about my friend uh, Kyle making an army where first he had Major Q9. He was thinking Major Q9, four squads of fourth mass, and maybe Asamu. But we just kind of thought Asamu, you'd never want to put order markers on him. Because he was he likes to play Q9 first, get Q9 killed. But if he does that, then he'd also have to kill his Isamu. So you might as well just not even play Isamu if he's going that route. Then the next army was Q9, which is as a menacer again. Three squads of fourth mass. I have them listed as sharks here because you've got two squads of death reavers as um, as defenders. So, so they kind of play more of a shark role when the defenders are there. And again, you're playing Q9 probably first to deal with whatever they've got and just to whittle them down and then finish them off with the fourth mass. Um, and he ultimately, and so he, so he t- t- thought about the army without the death reavers, but he ultimately went with death reavers because like I said, this is one of those Iowa tournaments where glyphs are going to be important. So he went with the two death reavers, but uh, if the Death Reavers weren't in the army, you could almost think of the Fourth Mass as being a bread and butter squad because Q9 gets suicided, and then all you're left with is four or Fourth Mass, so you're then going to put all your order markers on. Um, at the same event, um, Joe, Spider Poison, played three Gladiatrons, two Blastatrons, the Gladiatrons being your defenders, your Blastatrons being your uh, bread and butter squad, Raylan as your cheerleader, and then Marku Ezenwine and Isamu both as um, cleanup. Because Marku, I, I said in the article, he could be a glyph holder. He could be a really good glyph holder He's as a green unit, you know, a defender. But the fact that you're giving up moving eight guys a turn, especially if Marku turn, turns and betrays you, that could give you a lot of, that could really mess your early, early development of the board. So he actually never activated Marku the whole day and he won the tournament. So I think he knew what he was doing. <laughs> Well, he, yeah, he, I mean, he usually does. He usually does. <laughs> yeah, it turns out Spider's pretty good. Um, but I mean, yeah, if you're going to put early order markers on Marku, it really needs to be worth it. it it's kind of like if you if you're playing Marku and Rats, 
unless you're playing only like one squad of rats, you're probably not bothering with Marku to try to grab to try to grab a glyph in that first round either. But um, if if it comes down to it though, Marku is just an elite cleanup unit. I mean, his his value in that army just even even if all he's providing is cleanup, even if he's never gonna do the glyph grabbing. Between him and Asamu, I mean, 30 points, but that's that's an amazing pair of cleanup figures. So, um, I mean, I think that's a, I think it's a really, really good, well-built army. Not that it really matters what I think, obviously, because he won the tournament, but. Uh, then the other army is one we've already talked about a little bit. The other one that kind of affects how you, um, so you got two squads of Romans. Two squads of fourth mass, Marcus and Me Berksa. That's the army that UPC played. Uranus P Chicago played in Dallas back in the day. And there, I think your Romans would play more as defenders, and your fourth mass dudes line are kind of your your sharks behind that line. So you kind of use the Romans as a screen with maybe Me Berksa poking a bit, and then the fourth mass to just kind of wait and fire as they they attack you. But as I noted, putting the airborne elite in this army, it's too redundant with the fourth mass. It's like you pick one or the other, maybe just get more Romans, like you said, or or something else instead. So no. even though the yeah, go ahead. Oh, one thing I want to say. So when you're talking about also, we've talked about the um, fourth mass Roman build because this was this army was being played. This is pre tenth reg. So now that the tenth reg out, you would have you would want them usually because the fourth mass did not get valiant bonuses. It was probably back in like 2006 or 2007 this army was played. Yeah, but for sure. This is like clarify wait. that point. This is like wave two is out, you know, no Sir Gilbert. Not, <laughs> there's only one Sergeant Drake, you know, um, this is way back in the day. Um, and it was a 390 point build. There was no Isamu. He's just 390 for 400 points. And that was your army. So obviously like today you would just replace the two fourth Massachusetts line with red coats for sure. But as we were kind of saying, it makes more sense to just pick one or the other and maybe go more Romans or red coats. Cause like, Again, this is like no one was playing six squads of stingers at this time because one stingers weren't there. But like it was uncommon for people to play five of a squad, even though they could, I think, at that period of time. Um, all right. Um, should you we go to the next section or go ahead? Oh, do you think people just didn't have access? Like a lot of people didn't have that large of a collection back then? You were starting out or just yeah, how yeah. dominant it was? Or I think yeah. it's probably a mix of both, but I, I think people like. I don't think that many people like just thought to get a ton of fourth mass at that. Maybe fourth mass was one where people started to do it. Cause I know Joe won an early tournament with like four squads of mass and Charos. I don't know the exact year on that one, but that was another tree town open. I think that he won. Um, and that might've been in 2007 or 2006. Um, but it was just kind of, it's like, I mean, it's, I don't know. I mean, again, I wasn't there quite then in 2006. I started in 2007, and my first build was to, like, call like me and Kyle both wanted to play six squads of 4th Massachusetts line. So we called all of our friends and, like, bought as many as we could and borrowed from other people so we could get 12 squads of these guys for the tournament. We were So obviously by 2007, people were degenerates, I guess. Was that the well, – that was Tree Town, right, when you guys brought – yeah, uh, we brought Airborne Elite, too. because Right, cause, right. I remember that. I remember that. Because Jormy allowed us, because I asked ahead of time, I was like, hey, so since Airborne Elite don't start on the field, 
can they do they count towards your starting zone spaces because it was 530 point total i was like six squads math airborne elite 530 it's perfect i mean later on i thought i found out there are much better armies than that but it seemed just so clever at the time i thought it was i thought it was so clever we also tried three squads of gladiatrons three squads of blastatrons and airborne elite and that was not as good without the Raylan. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, I will throw in a parallel from Magic. I, so I think it's kind of one of those things where people, when, when a game is new, people aren't thinking necessarily so much about spamming stuff. So Magic the Gathering, you know, the very famous game, actually in its original incarnation didn't have a copy limit on cards. So you can run 60 copies of a card if you wanted. Um, as you can imagine, that got real silly when somebody brought like 30 of this card that basically just dealt direct damage to your opponent. So half half their deck um, was just or, a fireball or something. Or they just play enough moxes instead of lands. That's the other thing they used to do. <laughs> I, I don't know enough about magic to oh, to know oh, okay. what that is. But oh, okay, yeah. What what's moxes? So a mox is like. It's now each one is like a, I don't know, some ridiculous price. It's like a zero-cost artifact that taps for the land based on the color. So like Mox Emerald, zero-cost zero artifact, tap it, gain one green mana. So you could just, so it, it, it went around the, the limit of having lands out because you only put one land a turn. But right. you could just drop all your Mox in and have all your mana on, like turn one, like place under the cost five. Gotcha. Oh, I did, yeah, I did not know about that. So that, they're, they're part of the Power Nine, like that and Black Lotus. Black Lotus. Yeah. Yeah. Black Lotus is the famous one, but those are almost as expensive, and they were only printed in the first couple sets. But there were, but again, very few people bought enough packs to have that many rares of those. But that was the kind of thing people did before those things were really expensive. Right. Yeah. But um, yeah, my point was just kind of that. You know, if it, early on in game design, people aren't necessarily looking to break the game, which is kind of what I think, like, spamming fourth mass. Like, not that it breaks the game, but if if everybody's rolling up with, like, two ofs of commons and they hit six squads of fourth mass, they're going to have a bad time. Yeah, I lost tonight that tournament. I think I lost two games. I forgot what the other one was. But one of them was against, um, what's his name, Gibberish. He had two squads of knights and four squads of mass. And he just he just outplayed me because he was he had played more I think that was a lot of it but um but Jandar's dispatch is good <laughs> and I didn't have anything like that really and I you know I don't know he just it just worked well well Gilbert with with knights and fourth is actually a pretty I mean that's a solid army that's a really solid army dispatch is really nice with that yeah but but um. Should we get get back to the article here? This yeah, yeah. Sorry, part. I didn't mean to didn't mean to change no, it off. <laughs> no, that's all right. But yeah, I think it's interesting how the game develops. Like, I mean, I mean, now I think you probably don't see many people playing dwarves and stuff just because they're more expensive, or like Glad's Blast because they're hard to find as well. Like you guys saying, Trons are kind of underexplored, especially since the 16 hex limit has become a thing. You know, it's like, yeah. Well, I, th I think that's the big thing over even price, because, like, I own three Glads, two Blasts, and I played it once, I think, and that was at home, because <laughs> Gen Con tournaments just don't let me play it, so it's 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 kind of like, I, <laughs> if, if, if it were to ever back up to 24, I would play the army, definitely, 
but it's kind of it's kind of a dead army at this point outside of like weirder combinations of the stuff that you see in people like Dysol and Doc do in Reverse the Whip but um, yes. where like where Doc has been he brought at least once um, he brought like one squad of Glads with two squads of Blastatrons and then Dysol brought four squads of Blastatrons with no Glads so just completely shifts how those play um, but Yeah. All right. I mean, yeah, I'm trying to think about. I, I played the Trons this year, I think. Was it this year? But I, I threw Cyprian in there as a as a cleanup hero. I I did. I lost to Romans. Romans and Airborne Elite. You guys talked about never using grenades. Someone threw four grenades in my Raylan and killed all six of the guys around her. So <laughs> that was probably my fault in putting them all together. <laughs> I yeah, but, but that's that's also um, outcome based thinking too. Like I still think as a general rule, you don't use grenades. Well, I had one. Actually, what it was, I had one guy on a defense glyph. I had Raylan with like two life left. One first grenade killed the guy on the glyph. Then the next three grenades killed the the guy. Like it was, uh, it was, it was rough. <laughs> but um. Uh, sorry. Okay. So then the second section is how your opponent's units affect order marker usage. Right. So the, this is a weird army because like I, I I took a turn I played Cyprian. Sonya, Nilfheim, three squads of Death Reavers, and Marrow Warriors at a 550-point event. I ended up going 4-1, and one, um, and I kind of went through each of my games and talked about how things were. Normally, I was thinking of Cyprian as kind of the shark. I'd maybe use him early. Nilfheim second as the, sort of the menacer, or he could be the first kind of guy. And the Death Reavers are the very first thing. I'd almost always spend my first two order markers getting them out there, maybe even all three. And the Marrow Warriors were my cleanup. So, uh, so the first game I faced off a bunch of, against a bunch of agents, Q9 and Kaimanawa. So a lot of things that Cyprian can eat. And they, he started off by moving Cayman up. So I sent Cyprian out, and he ate everything except Q9. So and one ate and one Nikita agent. So like Cyprian totally did his work, and then Nilfheim came in and killed Q9, and that was that. It's like a he, guy had a lot of good units, but. I was able to sequence things in such a way that Cyprian behind the rats was able to do a lot of work. Um, second game, uh, I was up against Cayman, uh, Raylan, Braxis, one squad of Death Reavers and Crav Agents. So I sent my rats out to tie his Crav down, and I would think. So I was worried what Braxis would do to Cyprian and Marrow Warriors. I didn't want to send them out. So I decided to send Nilfheim out. But he responded by playing his Cayman. And his Cayman out got super lucky. Shot. Well, he'd already done two wounds to my Nilfheim with his Krav. And then the the uh, Cayman Awa did, in one quick release, four wounds. He did. He had five out of eight skulls on his two attacks. And I rolled one out of ten shields on my defense. I was looking at the battle report earlier today, too. So it's like, uh, I just lost Nilfheim. And at that point, I, I was just kind of like on my back foot and decided to use Cyprian anyway. And because his chilling touch evades Raylan's aura, I just went right for Braxis and tried to kill her, but Braxis got him first with like a 19. 
So, but Cyprian kind of had to shift into that role. Um, the next game was against Gladiatrons, Blastatrons, and Nilfheim. And uh, they started off by sending Glads and Blasts out. So I, I decided to do Rats and Nilfheim first, because Nilfheim could kind of pick at the Gladiatrons behind the rat wall. And I didn't want to send Cyprian out, obviously. So um, Nilfheim did his work against the Trons, and then Cyprian actually finished off Nilfheim with like a 20. Just like, boom, Nilfheim's gone. Um, that was another uh, pretty big win. And then the fourth game, I was up against three squads of Sentinels of Jandar, Raylan, Kramaga Agents, uh, Isamu, and Guilty. And this one was just really ugly. Because I just played rats and put Cyprian out there. None of it, like, he couldn't do anything about Cyprian. He had no special attacks, couldn't deal with the rats. Cyprian just killed things one by one. I even had a move glyph in that game. He was flying around at 10 spaces. Um, oh, that's brutal. <laughs> so it's like, so I would just pop around. It, yeah. And the last game, the closest game of the day, was against uh, Dale. Uh, Codney, Codeman had uh, five squads of minions for 550 points. And um, I ended up, like, I, I, well, first I just sent the rats out, and then I tried, tried having Cyprian chilling touch a couple guys, and he just got killed. I sent Nilfheim out, started using the ice shards to just try to pick off guys. And I was doing what I called, like, this rat dance. I was looking at the, at, at the, at the, uh, the battle report. As soon as the first minion would attack, the other two would scat- I'd scatter away the, the rats that were next to his other minions that he had moved to try to limit how many times he would attack. Like, I'd move them and engage something else that he didn't move that turn. And it, so just to limit how many guys he was killing. But that might have also been what got Nilfheim killed, because Nilfheim got killed. <laughs> and then and then it came down to the Marrow Warriors, and they just, like, killed, like, two or three squads of minions on their own. Because it was just them. I, I only had 95 points at the end of that one. It was Sonya and the four Marrow Warriors. And that's what, and that's, and that's why they're so good, and because the minions can only move four, that they're always going to be ahead of them by one space. Yeah. So that, so this was just an example of like an army that had things you could play at different times, and it's all kind of tied together by the Death Reavers, and also sort of shifting what to send out based on what they're sending out. You know, like if they're sending Solborgs out, I send Cyprian. If they're hanging their Q9 back again. I mean, if they're sending the Solborgs out, I don't send Cyprian. But again, like, if they're hanging Q9 back, I can do stuff with Cyprian. And it's like, I never played an army quite like this with Cyprian and Rats again, but I really liked it. And I'm surprised I never did it. This is my second tournament that I played. The first being when I played all those fourth mass. No, I, I like that, because you look at your third game, where Cyprian versus Glad Blast, Cyprian has, has almost no targets. So you're almost playing him in that situation where he stops becoming a shark and it almost becomes like a niche unit where he's only good at killing, I think, no, your opponent's no fine, but he's just like a really good niche unit where he's got like a very specific role in the army. Where in other games, like, you know, when you're playing the Sentinels and Krav, you can just put shark on him all day and you, you're just, you just feed into him. He almost becomes bread and butter because you're not even, you're not even scared. Even if you stop putting order markers on Cyber, if you plop them on height, they just don't have the attacks to get through him and stuff. So it's like, it's just game to game, and even in the matchup, it's interesting how they use shift and how you all break it down with all the nice color coded, so people can read and really see exactly your thought process. Yeah, 
Yeah, and the, I have the battle report out there too. If you go to like the tournament armies played thread and find my tournament armies played, you can find the link to that. I'll, I, I did battle reports for almost all my tournament games, at least early on. Um, and then you, I guess, yeah. If you PM me a link to that, I can link that in the, in the description once I upload this. Like the tournament armies played spot? Like, uh, like or the, the battle report. Where, um, just like the page of the, of it. Where the battle are. report. He's talking about yeah. the battle report. Yeah. Yeah. Like the battle report that I was just, ta- for the games I was just talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. All right. So let's talk about this last section. I said how glyphs and other factors can affect your order market decisions. Oh, I guess it's just saying that like, so like if you have an attack glyph, death reavers can actually become a bread and butter unit. That was the joke that I kind of put in because I had a game where I was playing against Kyle and I got the the unique or the either the common attack or the regular attack glyph and my death reavers killed his Q9 because they were getting three attack dice from height. So it's like, you know, you don't don't count things out. You know, you got to kind of like go with the decisions. Um Oh, and then I talk about weird glyphs like Thorian and other stuff like that, so it's kind of silly. But it's basically just talking about how um, your sequencing world uh, of what you put out kind of depends on on what what glyphs are out there. Yeah, that makes sense. Like a lot of uh, like defense glyphs can definitely shift things, like shift kind of sharks into the men or categories where you're they have they also have that high defense. So you're okay not putting as many order markers on a shark as you might have before because you're okay if they're engaged. You're okay to take some fire because you think you can hold for a little bit. Oh, and, oh here's kind of another example too. So I guess in the tournament, like or in a game, you have um, one guy playing Q9 and fourth mass that are non-valiant because he's got Q9, and the other guy's got uh, glads and blasts. So the Glads and Blasts move to a summoning glyph and summon Q9 down into the water, right? And they surround him with five guys. So Q9 could die at any time, right? Mm-hmm. But he doesn't because he starts because he starts attacking the the fourth mass that have no defense, you know, that are that have the low defense and are and have all their order markers on them, you know, because he shifts his order markers from Q9 because he could die, shifts them to the fourth mass, but then the guy the Tron player responds by attacking the the fourth mass. Instead of Q9 right away. Does that kind of make sense? Definitely. Yeah, you gotta you gotta take you gotta take things based on what what your opponents can be trying to do. So if they're not gonna activate Q9, it doesn't matter. You can kill them now. You can kill them later. But you know, picking off those fourth mass with two V2s is a lot better than what they're gonna be doing. And Blastertrons have seven range, correct me if I'm wrong. Right, they have seven range, so they can out they they can stay out of weight than fire range. So so even right. if you're not putting glads next to them, you can still get decent shots from from range. Right. Um, and you can you just prevent that weight than fire, which is huge because you're taking two V twos, they're taking three V or two V threes. So just statistically it's working out in your favor. Yeah. It's I mean it's one of the reasons I think that trons are pretty good against red coats too. Um in general, like it's it's funny, like because you guys are so it's everything so melee centric now that red coats are everywhere. But like I never was afraid of red coats because I'd almost always be playing ranged units, you know. Like red coats were like there, I yeah, like them in Q10, I always saw as like a step below the stuff that we were worried about at the time, which is why like I'd like to try reverse the whip sometime, but I it's just like 
it's a lot for me to think about. <laughs> and then I'd, there, I'd run into a lot of units I don't know as well that I'd have to play, you know. Um, that's well, definitely our, our idea when making armies. We want to put like people, <laughs> really good players uncomfortable with stuff that they're not used to. Yeah. It's like, what does this card do again? I know I tested it, but... I just I just find I just find some weak melee bonding army and play that. Um, yeah, is, isn't that isn't it a weird isn't it a weird uh, um, dynamic nowadays, James? That like and I don't know if everything is so melee centric. I think it helps quite a bit that um, Michael's very, pretty melee centric and I am. Um, I wouldn't say that every because Nathan and Cody are not definitely not melee centric because they're fools, but. Um, Praxis is technically melee. She doesn't winners is the word you're looking for. <laughs> winners is the word you're looking for. That's true. Cody is a big Braxis fan. So, Cody, you are a melee fan. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so, so, I, so, by listening to just the podcast, it's probably a little bit biased towards melee, just so you know, um, compared to the current scene nowadays. But it's just, it's just such a, a, di- uh, a different take than, say, 10 years ago. And I think, again, that comes back to the maps. Um, I haven't played on all these maps, but my impression, at least when I played in a couple of tournaments, you know, over the Gen Cons in the middle there in the, like the 2015 kind of time, 2016, that maps, like things are just a lot more, um, I don't want to say melee-centric, but just like more, less punishing to melee than they used to be. Yeah, the map, you got to give them a fighting chance because... I mean, range just has the inherent advantage, and maps just can exacerbate that. So we're trying to not have maps ex- exacerbate the the bad matchups and give them a chance. I think also jungle, shadow, and stuff. The later designs were more they were more conscious of giving them a leg up, and then map designers kind of followed suit and also helped them out. So it's a lot of factors. I feel. Yeah, that makes sense. Um... But yeah, it's kind of I, yeah. I think it's cool that you guys are still looking at these articles from like 12 years ago now. <laughs> it's just it's just flattering and, and it's been fun. I don't know if you guys have any other questions or things you want to point out about them. Well, there's there's still super relevant. I mean, you everything we do is at least rooted at like in these articles. Well, specifically the first one. Again, we just found out that the second and fourth one existed today <laughs> so you might want to um link them like higher up in, my my advice is link them higher up in the article like at the top like it, to read more see this and this i think they're great but again i i had no idea they existed um and i i will say though it's what's interesting so like i'm primarily a grutz player uh heavy's blades those are those are kind of my two builds that i i play the most um and What's what's very interesting is that especially in those in those grut builds, your gruts are f- really functioning along so many of these lines, right? Like like uh, the, the the gruts are the obviously the bread and butter. However, they're also a lot of times the defenders too. When I'm playing blade gruts with Grimnak, my goal is for Grimnak to not die for as long as possible. So I'm throwing them out in what I call tethering, which is basically throwing a blade grut into a bad position where I know it's going to die anyways. But just just to get that uh, engagement, to tie them up, to block the way, whatever, I don't care about losing a blade grunt. So they're, they're bread and butter, but they're also defenders. And I think that's where it gets interesting is 
how many of these categories shift within a game, within a single like squad like some of my blades are being defenders some of my, some of my blades are just being regu- uh, regular bread and butter some of my blades are like if i'm playing heavies like if i if, if i have tornak they're like tornak and a couple heavies are going to be pretty sharky then because they're just going to try to kill as much as they can while they're together throwing three uh three attacks of four in a turn or whatever um i don't know that's just something that kind of struck me is that even within these these armies that have only one card you're putting those on i mean and obviously blade or and obviously gruts have supporting roles with your bonding heroes right with like nirak with grimnak um with tornak you've got these these cheerleaders really um although grimnak and tornak kind of shift a little bit but you can even play nirak a little more aggressively in grunt build sometimes and i i know veggie um was talking about this where basically he plays Nirak a little bit more aggressively in Death Chaser build specifically to to tie up units to to keep his Death Chasers alive even beyond just using him for his aura, which is something I haven't really done before. I'm not not that well versed in Death Chasers, um, but I don't know. That's I just found that fascinating. Um, just thinking about it because I guess I never really thought about it. Like I'm just so used to playing Gruts that. It's just kind of second nature, but like when you stop to think about it, they're they're really fulfilling so many different roles. Uh-huh. And uh, that tethering concept is kind of you start talking about using it with your blade gruts, but when you get to like uh, when I was playing the arrow gruts, I um like that's kind of how I, I would use Krug, because it's like they don't want to attack Krug, you know, but I'm gonna put him in their face and tie up as many red coats or whatever as I can, so that my arrows can shoot with impunity, you know. So that's kind of how that army used to work, if I'm remembering correctly. Again, I tried to look at my battle report from that one time that I... Because, again, it was like, I like playing the orcs, but I just kept telling myself that they weren't good enough. And then, like, I just went to a random turn with Aerogruts after Gen Con 2010, you know, and people were playing all these kind of crazy stuff, and I I, I managed to win every game. So that, you just got to play the that, games. That's hearsay. Gruts <laughs> are great. Don't, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. <laughs> I heard uh, Braxis was brought up. Uh, yeah, we were talking about Braxis. Uh, James made the comment that Braxis is actually a melee unit. So, Cody, we are slowly but surely bringing you to the dark side. Yeah, well, I was in the shower, and I couldn't uh, respond, but I was listening to you guys. <laughs> and uh, Braxis can hang with melee. And uh, do you know what unit also can hang with melee, Ken? No, I don't think there's any units that can hang with melee, if we're being honest. Stainers. Like, do you want to get into this right now, Cody? (laughs) They do not (laughs) mind being engaged. They'll go toe-to-toe with humans, orcs, you name it. And they're going to lose? Just because you go toe-to-toe doesn't mean you're going to win. Like, come on now. Like, nobody. I got five range, baby. Five range? What's that going to, who are you shooting at? Like, somebody with a minus two move glyph? Like, I don't even understand. <laughs> and then I got Braxis coming up from the back. I tell you what, man. I would love to and play my night. this episode, my, my order marker play is going to be so good. It's going to be unbelievable. <laughs> you better. <laughs> but, yeah, is really were ubiquitous back in the day. I think it's because, like, almost everyone had a master set or two. So it's pretty easy to just grab four squads of Stingers and your favorite hero and just go at it. Um, good point. And it's a pretty good army, just Stingers and any good hero. Stingers yeah. No, not, not really. <laughs> not really. 
Stingers Raylan was just kind of the army that you could get anybody into the game playing. Like Stingers, Stingers back in the day were like five bucks a squad. That that right there, and Raylan people would give you a Raylan. So it's like that's a twenty dollar army to enter to to get into the game with. That's why I always liked that army from at least a conceptual standpoint. It's just like that's a competitive army for like twenty bucks, and chances are you're already buying at least one master set too, anyways. So you just need to pick up two more squads of Stingers. It's like that's insane. I, I thought I I just always thought that was really good for the game, like oh, oh, an easy way for for new players to jump into the competitive scene. Well, and at the time, Ragnar's vision was pretty easy to get too. At that right. time, so like no five Q nine were pretty pretty easy to get, but that's not that they're not too expensive now, but they're not they're not cheap. Yeah, I don't think anything's cheap except Elf Wizards. <laughs> I think that's like the, the only pack that's fairly cheap nowadays. So I guess, so uh, I guess for like the last thing that I would ask James is, uh, um, so you got somebody like Cody um, who just can't figure out how to quite to be good at the game. So, <laughs> so what would you? Because he's still playing Stingers. So, to to the newer players out there, what like what one thing? Because uh, I would say you know. Um, Back in the day, you were you were probably the sharpest strategic mind in terms of HeroScape, and I'm not saying you're not anymore. You're just a little rusty, so you haven't played for a while. But like, what would what advice would you give to somebody that's starting out about like if they want to get good at HeroScape? Like, what was what's the best piece of advice you could give them? I mean, I know it sounds cliche, but just to play, like just you know play a lot and and find someone else who's into playing a lot and. You know, look at like if you don't necessarily have all the good units, you can proxy them. You can figure out why things work the way they do. Um, read what other people smarter than you say about stuff. I mean, that's what I did. You know, I, I looked at Master Trucks rallies, battle reports. I, I listened to Joe, his power rankings, you know, and then I kind of synthesized my own thing after that. Um, but really, you just got to like so so read what makes sense to you and, and, and just try to play the game a lot. Um, and, and I think I think like the whole you saying playing the game a lot. I think that's such a big deal because um, um, and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but people say, you know, Ken, why, why are you good at HeroScape? I probably played easily a thousand games of HeroScape, like easily in my. I mean, because I'm a lot older, like than everybody on this podcast, but maybe James. Um, so, like, I've easily played a thousand games of HeroScape. So, like, as James said, like, I know who does what. I know what they're going to try and do, and I'm going to try and stop them to do that because it won't be beneficial for me. And, and a big part, of the, big part of that is just I've just been playing a thousand games of HeroScape minimum, so I kind of have an idea of what somebody else is going to try. So I think that speaks volumes, in all honesty. Just play more, play more, and play more, and play with different things, too, um, just so you know how they interact with others. Yeah, because, like, I mean, again, uh, when I was playing with Kyle, he'd usually just play the same units all the time, but I would test different things out against him to figure out what else might work. And we'd play a bunch before events and uh, just try to get a handle on things when we could. But eventually you kind of get to the point where you probably are at, Ken, where you could probably not play for a while and still do pretty well just because you've played so many games at this point, you know. But it, it could probably still help to, like play on the specific map pool to know what points to know about on the maps i think because sometimes certain things that you think will work in general what might not play out well on the maps at all 
Um, that's the other piece of advice I'd give if you're looking to a specific tournament. Excellent point. I agree. And also, I would just add that no, it gets easier. Um, it, like uh, for those who don't know, I'm starting starting law school now, and it's the type of deal where you have to spend a ton of time early on just just learning how to read uh, cases, learning how just relearning definitions of words because words that you think mean one thing mean something completely different under the law. So it's just a grind, but then it's a type of deal where you spend all that legwork, those, you know, that thousand games early on, which is, I mean, there's, there's no, there's no replacement for that. I mean, we all did it. Um, I, I know Nathan probably has as well. I know um, Cody as well, probably have each played at least like 300 tournament games total, uh, probably with, with probably more than half of those coming from Gen Con, um, or at least like half of them coming from Gen Con, which is, you know, high level competition. And, um, I mean, there's, there's no replacement for that. And, uh, you, but here's the deal as you get better at the game with your fundamentals, it'll be easier to pick up new armies and easier to pick up new units and easier to play on new maps because you've, you've got the fundamental building box down. And once you, once you've analyzed a hundred maps, you can analyze the new maps. Not that, you know, with, with not that much difficulty, you know, you still, so it still is very good to, to play on them once. And I usually do try to play on the ones I haven't played on before once. Well, especially now because I have to test the map pool. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, it's it's just gonna get it's just gonna get easier, but there's there's no replacement and um there's no replacement to to experience, you know. But read read articles too. Read read uh, these three articles. I'm gonna link in the description. And anything else you want to add tonight, James? I don't know. What do you say? Happy scaping. <laughs> and cut. <laughs>